Frank Yamasaki was 18 years old when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. His family ran a hotel in Seattle, and Frank was one of the only Japanese-American students in his high school. When America declared war in Japan on December 8, 1941, he began to sense a change among his white friends. As I walked toward the locker, they would find an excuse to walk in some other direction because they don't want to be embarrassed, you know. And God, it was just like I had uh, some kind of virus. In Los Angeles, Aiko Yoshinaga also felt a change. Like Frank Yamasaki, she was a high school senior. I think our non-Japanese friends didn't really know how to treat us. I think they knew that we would be hurt if they ostracized us. On the other hand, just like our neighbors, I believe that they felt if they were too friendly with us, they would be labeled Jap lovers. Sometimes the rejection was overt. Aiko's high school principal declared that he was not handing out diplomas to Aiko and her Japanese-American peers that spring because, he said, your people bombed Pearl Harbor. And to be deprived of that diploma was a big blow to us. It was a proof that the feeling we had been carrying all the time, sort of a self-hatred for not being white, showed its ugly face and ugly head at that time. Frank Yamasaki eventually stopped going to school. It was just too painful. But life at home wasn't exactly an escape. The media were stirring up anti-Japanese hatred, and Frank's parents worried about the rumors they were hearing, that they would be rounded up, that they would be forced to leave. I say, Ma, no, this is America, you know, that's not going to happen. We thought we were American citizens, therefore we were protected. We were protected by the Constitution to continue to have the freedom, the liberty that all Americans have a right to. Within weeks, Aiko and Frank would learn the truth. The start of war meant the end of those protections for people of Japanese ancestry on the West Coast. From APM Reports and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, this is Order 9066, a podcast series about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. I'm Saab Shimono. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Two days after Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt spoke to the nation on the radio. The sudden criminal attacks perpetrated by the Japanese in the Pacific provide the climax of a decade of international immorality. FDR's words, along with radio news broadcasts, intensified anti-Japanese sentiments. The Japanese have landed at three points in Java. The oil field and refineries near Japo were demolished last night to prevent them falling into the hands of the Japanese. The Japanese have advanced about 30 miles further and have captured Pegu, about 40 miles from the capital. At the start of 1942, West Coast politicians began demanding that the federal government take drastic action against Japanese Americans in the region. They were joined by anti-immigrant groups, business associations, and many voices in the media. Hearst newspaper columnist Henry McLemore wrote, The only Japanese apprehended have been the ones the FBI actually had something on. The rest of them, so help me, are free as birds. I am for immediate removal of every Japanese on the West Coast to a point deep in the interior. 
I don't mean a nice part of the interior either. Let him be pinched, hurt, hungry, and dead up against it. Proponents of mass exclusion had the ear of FDR's War Department, including the Army Commander in California, Lieutenant General John DeWitt. DeWitt claimed that all Japanese Americans were potential traitors, and he warned his superiors that farmers or fishermen on the Pacific coast could be signaling Japan. FBI investigations and Roosevelt's own intelligence sources showed that these claims were false, but that very finding led to a rather odd conclusion. The fact that there was no actual sabotage or espionage by Japanese Americans was clear evidence of how dangerous and untrustworthy they were. This is historian Alice Yang. Because, in this twisted reasoning, Japanese Americans are so treacherous and dangerous, they're willing to withhold their espionage and sabotage to lull Americans into a false sense of security so that then they could have a concentrated attack. Walter Lippmann, one of the nation's most respected journalists, took up this idea. He warned in February that the Pacific coast was in imminent danger. In a column published nationwide, Lippmann questioned what was owed Japanese Americans during war. There is the assumption that if the rights of a citizen are abridged anywhere, they have been abridged everywhere. Nobody's constitutional rights include the right to reside and do business on a battlefield. Al Yang says the widespread mistrust of Japanese Americans reflected long-held beliefs that they were inherently different from Americans and unable to assimilate. This idea was at the heart of a report DeWitt wrote justifying the mass removal of Japanese Americans from the Pacific coast. He actually states that even though later generations of Japanese Americans and citizens are, and I quote, Americanized, he also stated that the racial strains are undiluted, meaning that regardless of what kind of behavior they'd had, their education, you know, people who had served in the military, for example, racially, because those racial strains are undiluted, they could never be trusted. Historian Greg Robinson says these notions were hardly foreign to President Roosevelt. Roosevelt supported laws limiting the ability of Japanese people to settle in the U.S., to become citizens, or to own agricultural land. To FDR, these laws were good. Because they protected white racial purity against intermarriage and protected uh, the population against this unassimilable Japanese presence. Robinson says that Roosevelt didn't actually hate the Japanese, but he harbored a common prejudice. He had a certain feeling that Japanese were in some undefinable but nonetheless important way not really American. People clamoring for the forced eviction of Japanese Americans from the West Coast said it would be impossible to determine who would be loyal to the U.S. and who wouldn't. Therefore, the thinking went, all people of Japanese ancestry needed to be cleared from the West Coast, both aliens and citizens. Not everyone supported mass removal, including President Roosevelt's own attorney general, Francis Biddle, and his FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover. 
they all said, we've got the situation in hand. Legal historian Eric Muller. We arrested these couple of thousand. We can handle this by individual arrests. We can handle this by increased powers of search and seizure. We can handle this by maybe setting up particular small military installations with a perimeter around them from which people of Japanese ancestry might be excluded. But there's no need, the Justice Department maintained. And it might even be illegal to take broad race-based action against the whole group. Attorney General Biddle pleaded privately with Roosevelt, but Roosevelt's trusted Secretary of War convinced him to go in another direction. From the White House today came the most drastic action yet taken against possible fifth column activity, sabotage and spying on the Pacific coast. On February 19, 1942, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066. The effect of an executive order issued by the president is to allow the Secretary of War to remove not only Japanese aliens, but Japanese who are American citizens from strategic areas on the West Coast. For all its impact, historian Eric Muller says the language of Executive Order 9066 was remarkably bland. You don't find the word Japanese anywhere in 9066. You don't find references to long-term detention. You know, if an alien were to pick it up and read it, they wouldn't imagine that there was anything racial about the executive order at all. It just, it just speaks of people and the power of the military to remove people from zones. But in reality, Order 9066 resulted in the incarceration of roughly 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry. Eric Muller notes that while the nation was also at war with Germany and Italy, immigrants from those countries were generally spared the same fate under Order 9066. It was a very dry, legalistic-sounding document. It spoke very neutrally, and then it was applied in a wholly racial fashion. When President Roosevelt signed Order 9066, he had credible intelligence showing that Japanese Americans posed no major threat to the West Coast and that clearing them from the region was unnecessary. On the other hand, it was easier to get rid of the Japanese Americans for the period of the war, to move them away, rather than risk riots on the West Coast or a break in production for the Pacific Theater. Greg Robinson. And the rights of 120,000 people that he again, in some subtle but authentic way, he didn't really think of Americans anyway, were not important compared to the needs of the war effort. The original intent of Order 9066 was to force people of Japanese ancestry to move inland to places like Montana, Wyoming, Utah, and Idaho. But Al Shang says the governors of those states protested vehemently. They said... We don't want them coming into our areas. If you're going to remove them from the West Coast, we want them placed in camps. Camps that were guarded by armed soldiers and surrounded by barbed wire. In March of 1942, public notices started to appear in Japanese-American neighborhoods along the West Coast. Instructions to all persons of Japanese ancestry. They were nailed to telephone poles and tacked up at the post office. All Japanese persons, both alien and non-alien, will be evacuated from the designated area by 12 o'clock noon 
Tuesday, April 7th, 1942. The dates varied from one community to the next, but the instructions were the same. Each Japanese-American family had to report to a certain location, like a hardware store or church, to register for removal and pick up tags with numbers on them. They were to attach those tags to themselves and their belongings on departure day. Japanese-Americans, for the most part, had one week's notice. They had no idea where they were going to be removed to. They didn't know the location. All they knew was that they could only bring what they could carry. Matsue Watanabe was 14 years old when the exclusion orders were posted in her community. We only took what we had to take because we only had one suitcase that we can take. She lived on Bainbridge Island near Seattle, where her family grew strawberries. And, of course, in that suitcase, you're trying to put maybe a sheet or so that you can have for sleeping. And uh, the rest is your clothes and your shoes. So you're not taking any toys or anything like that. And I don't recall if I put any books in there. One suitcase for the rest of your life that we thought isn't a lot. It was hard to decide. Do we take summer clothes, winter clothes, sneakers, boots, or what? This is Aiko Herzig Yoshinaga. I found what few things I selected were totally inadequate for the kind of weather that we finally did encounter. I remember one of my girlfriends now, she could see the pictures of my sister and uh, us walking down the dock, and she could see that they're dressed up and they have hats on and everything. And she says, why did you dress up to go to camp? And I said, well, we had no place else to put it except on our body because you had one suitcase to carry. So the good clothes you wore. Many families had just days to prepare for removal, and they were frantic. They had to figure out what to take with them and how to store or get rid of everything else they owned. With so many men locked in FBI detention centers, it often fell to the wives and the eldest sons to manage. Well, I think preparing to leave was probably the hardest thing for, for my mother. What to take, what to destroy, what to sell. My f- mother had to dispose of the farm. We had to get rid of our business. We had to take care of our, all of our financial affairs. The uh, neighbors knew that the shorter time we had to leave, the more willing we would be to lower our prices. The first concern for my dad was to, you know, what are we going to do with the grocery store with all the inventory? You know, we had all the canned goods and stuff like that. So there were vultures all around, hanging around for days, waiting for the day that we would move, that we would literally have to give things away. The previous year, my dad had spent about $9,000 to revamp the store. Basically, those type of people would converge and wheel and deal and buy all sorts of things with the rate of maybe 10 cents on a dollar and uh, I guess he made a lot of money. He wanted to buy the place lock, stock, and barrel with the equipment and uh, all the inventory for 400 bucks. (laughs) 400 bucks. That's when my dad sold the grocery store for 400 bucks. I have heard many stories of mothers who were so furious at the insulting prices that were offered by 
buyers. They, rather than sell them, they would break the dishes or the big platters that they cherished so much. Some families found places to store things, in a friend's barn, in a back room of an apartment, or a Buddhist temple. But they had no idea whether their belongings would still be there if and when they returned home. Jane Oka was nine years old when her family was forced to leave their farming community in Salinas, California. What she recalls are not the things her family lost, but the animals. My dad killed all the chickens that we had. We had them for eggs, and probably when they got old, we did eat chicken. But we had a time frame. I mean, we, we were going to be incarcerated. So there was a period where we had chicken almost every night. And I, I knew my dad didn't... He felt horrible killing repeatedly. The first Japanese-Americans to be forcibly removed were on Bainbridge Island, where Matsue Watanabe lived. We had to wait for the big army trucks to come to pick us up. The army drove Matsue, along with her five siblings and mother, to a dock. There they waited to be loaded onto ferries that would bring them to Seattle. Matsue felt humiliated. Because we're standing there with all the military around us, as if we had really done something bad, and so they were going to take us away. I didn't want to look at anybody I knew there because I felt uh, ashamed to be having to go away. It was a very scary experience for us, not knowing if and when we would be back and where we were going. We didn't know where we were going. On the day her family left home, Jane Oka piled into the back of a pickup truck with her brothers and sisters. Our dog saw us leaving and followed us until he got worn out and he couldn't keep up. And we were told two days later he disappeared. As Jane was being forced from her home in Salinas, 17-year-old Aiko Yoshinaga faced a crisis in Los Angeles. She was in love with a boy who lived on the other side of town, and they worried about where they each would be sent. Los Angeles was a big area. It was divided into different sections. And different sections would be sent to different camps. We found out that the persons living in the area which, where he lived would be going to a particular assembly center, whereas my family would be going somewhere else. And so, foolishly, and desperately in love, we eloped so I could go with his family. A few days later, Aiko boarded a train with her new husband and his family. They were taken to a camp still under construction in a desolate area east of the Sierra Nevada mountains. It was called Manzanar. The uh, day we arrived, was hot, dusty. When we got off the bus, we lined up, were told which barrack we should go to, then told to go to a certain area where we were issued a sack, long sack, which served as the mattress cover, told to fill it with hay, which served as our mattress for the period that we were in the camps. 
It was devastating. By June of 1942, the United States Army had forcibly removed more than 110,000 people of Japanese ancestry from their homes along the West Coast. They sent most of them to so-called assembly centers. These were primitive temporary holding camps set up on fairgrounds and racetracks. Later, the people would be dispersed across 10 different incarceration camps. Their numbers would grow to 120,000. In our next chapter, Japanese Americans cope with life behind barbed wire. Boy, it was a real a traumatic type of living where you're in the former stoves where uh, the pigs and the cows and everything else were. So you read so much about democracy and all this and, and what does citizenship mean? Is, uh, I try to be a good citizen and man, they're tossing me into joints like this. You've been listening to Order 9066. Please help us spread the word about the series by leaving a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saab Shimono. Order 9066 is produced by Kate Ellis and Stephen Smith and edited by Mary Beth Kirshner. The theme music is by Genji Soraisi. The production team includes Nathan Toby, Alex Palmhart, Andy Cruz, Hannah Murayama, and Emerald O'Brien. This podcast is a collaboration with the National Museum of American History. The team there includes Jennifer Jones, Noriko Sanefuji, and Valeska Hilpig. Special thanks to Denjo, the Japanese-American Legacy Project. Their mission is to preserve the testimonies of Japanese Americans who were unjustly incarcerated during World War II. Many of the oral histories used in this series were provided by Densho. You can see photos from the incarceration period and find links to additional resources at our website, apmreports.org. While you're there, you can upload photos of any objects you may have that are linked to the incarceration. You can see a gallery of what others have contributed. And you can also find a link to the Smithsonian Online Exhibition, Writing a Wrong. Support for Order 9066 comes from the Terasaki Family Foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Wallace Alexander Gerbodi Foundation, and Penelope Shala. This is APM, American Public Media.